Well, can you believe it? There are still those who are saying that the book of Revelation is hard to understand. But codswallops say we, for you see the word itself. Revelation means that something has been revealed. And the first words of this amazing book tell us exactly who it is that's being revealed. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And God wanted us to read this book so much that he promised anyone who would take the time to read and respond to it a special blessing. And we find that blessing in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Let's claim it together as we always do. It says, blessed is he or she who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. But God knew there would still be those who would claim revelation is hard to understand. So to make it easy to understand, he also included a simple and easy to follow outline. And we find that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. It says, write the things which you have seen. Jesus says, John, I want you to write about the resurrected and glorified version of me that you saw in chapter one. Then Jesus says, John, I want you to write about the things which are. That refers to the church age, which began around 32 AD, continues to the present day, and is prophesied in chronological order in chapters two and three. And then third and lastly, Jesus says, John, I want you to write about the things which will take place after this after the church age comes to a close. And when does the church age end? That happens in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Let me read it to you. John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, that was the voice of Jesus in chapter 1, was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. And up John goes, serving as a picture of the church who will be raptured to be with the Lord. And Jesus takes all of chapters four and five to make sure that we don't miss the fact that the church is with him in heaven before his wrath is poured out on the earth that has rejected him. And as the wrath is being poured out, Revelation 6.16 reveals that those on the earth will know and understand the source of their judgment, identifying it as the wrath of the Lamb. And who is the Lamb in Scripture? It's Jesus. So chapter 1 introduces the focus of Revelation, Jesus Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 take us through the church age up to the present day. The church goes up in chapter 4, verse 1. We see her safe and secure with the Lord in heaven for chapters 4 and 5 before wrath comes down in chapter 6. That wrath will continue for seven years, the course of which is known as the tribulation, and it's documented in chapters 6 through 19, after which Jesus returns to the earth with his saints in the event known as the second coming, which we will be studying today. And the good news is that if you love Jesus, 
then I can tell you this. Your story will end with the words, and they lived happily ever after. Thank you for that, Lord. We are back in chapter 19 this week for part two of the second coming, where we will witness Jesus returning to the earth with us to rule and reign for the thousand years of the millennial kingdom. There are five things that I mentioned last time to keep in mind that will take place at the second coming. First, Jesus will defeat all forces of evil, freeing the earth of Satan's influence. Second, Jesus will reveal himself to Israel and their relationship will be restored. Third, Jesus will remove everyone on the earth who has rejected him. Fourth, Jesus will host the marriage supper of the Lamb, where he will be joined to his bride, the church. And fifth, Jesus will inaugurate the millennial kingdom and begin his reign over the earth from Jerusalem. Let's jump back into the text in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. John says, now I saw heaven opened, underlined, I saw heaven opened. As we mentioned in that introduction, heaven opened in chapter 4, verse 1, for the rapture, the event where Jesus comes for his church. Let me just read it to you one more time. At that moment, John said, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. It's obvious that in the event described in that verse, the believer is moving from earth to heaven. Remember that Jesus told his disciples, I will come again and receive you to myself. Now here in Revelation 19.11, we see heaven open again for the second coming the event where Jesus comes with his church. And we'll see that the believer now moves from heaven to earth. Paul referred to this as the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And Zechariah prophesied about the second coming, writing, Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. When you begin to examine the details of these two events, the rapture and the second coming, it quickly becomes apparent that they cannot possibly be the same event. They're so different, they are undeniably mutually exclusive. At the rapture, Jesus comes for his church. At the second coming, Jesus comes with his church. So write this down on your outlines. In Revelation 4, verse 1, heaven opens for the rapture. In Revelation 19, 11, heaven opens for the second coming. And the seven-year tribulation takes place between those two events, the rapture and the second coming. Continuing in verse 1, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, underline faithful and true. And, and then underline this, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Faithful and true 
is how Jesus referred to himself back in Revelation 3.14 in his letter to the last church, the last day's church, the church age we are living in, the Laodicean church. Just as Jesus was faithful to do his father's will at his first coming, he will be faithful to do his father's will at his second coming. And just as he was true to every promise he made in his word regarding his first coming, he will be true to every promise he has made in his word regarding his second coming. He is faithful and true. I also had you line the phrase, in righteousness he judges and makes war, because in light of everything we see in the book of Revelation, we must never forget that everything God does is righteous. It's right. Have you ever heard somebody post or rock a tattoo that reads, only God can judge me? By this point in our study, I hope we all understand that such notions are true and should terrify those who belong to Jesus, who do not belong to Jesus, sorry, because he will judge every man and woman. If you have a tattoo that says only God can judge me, that should concern you if you are not right with the Lord, because he will judge you. But here's the glorious truth. If you belong to Jesus, you have already been judged by God. The Father judged Jesus for your sins in your place. Judgment for your sins, past, present, and future, was rendered to Jesus just outside the city of Jerusalem around 2,000 years ago. Can you say amen to that good news? Amen. That is good news. We've already been judged if we belong to Jesus. Verse 12, his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. This description of Jesus' eyes is intended to convey the fact that he is coming to judge the earth. Fire speaks of judgment in the scriptures, and the reference to many crowns is intended to convey the absolute authority over everything and everyone that Jesus has. He has absolute authority over everything and everyone on the earth and everyone and everything in the universe, everyone who's ever lived. It says he had a name written that no one knew except himself. In the Bible, one's name tends to speak of one's nature. And what is suggested here is that there is a side to Jesus that nobody knows except God. And when we see him, when we really see Jesus face to face, we will be absolutely awed by what we behold because even the most devoted among us don't know Jesus today the way we will know him then. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, that now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. One day we will know Jesus the way he knows us, and we will spend eternity appreciating the infinite nuances and facets 
of his glory. Verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and then underline this, and his name is called the Word of God. The second coming of Jesus is literal. Aspects of it, such as the sword coming out of his mouth, the rod of iron, which we'll read about in a moment, the wine press at Armageddon, are figurative. The robe of Jesus that is dipped in blood is figurative. And we know that because at this moment, Jesus has not yet engaged his enemies on the earth. It's pointing to what is about to unfold on the earth as Jesus returns as a conquering warrior. If you saw an image of a soldier holding a knife with blood sprayed on his clothes, you would immediately recognize that this is a warrior, not an ambassador coming to offer terms of peace. That's the idea here. It's imagery that is foreshadowing the fact that Jesus is returning to the earth as the Lion of Judah, not the Lamb of God. If you ever think we overstate or overemphasize the importance of the Word of God, the Bible, please notice verse 13. The Word of God is one of Jesus' names. It's who he is. His word is intimately and inseparably part of his identity. John, who just told us that Jesus' name is the word of God, began his gospel with these words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Then he goes on in verse 14 of that same chapter to write, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is his word, and his word is him. It's a mystical truth that Jesus and his word are inseparably connected. And so when we interact with God's word, we interact with God. That's why we approach the Bible so reverently. And it's why we take it so seriously. Would you write this down? The word of God is part of Jesus's identity. The word of God is part of Jesus's identity. Verse 14, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. In heaven, who is clothed in fine linen, white and clean? The saints, you and me. We saw that in our previous study in verses 7 and 8 of Revelation 19. Revelation 7 verse 9 told us that white robes will also be given to tribulation saints, those who turn to Jesus after the rapture, in the tribulation. This army will also certainly include the old covenant saints who will have just received their resurrected bodies and the angels who are prophesied to be with Christ at his return. So to summarize, the armies in heaven will include the church, tribulation saints, old covenant saints, and the angels. Jesus' return is going to be spectacular. And keep in mind, Jesus doesn't need any backup. 
Armageddon isn't going to be a war. It's going to be an appointment, and a very short appointment at that. We won't be there to fight. Jesus will take care of everything, as he always has and does. We will be there as his hype posse. I don't know how else to say it. We'll be waving towels, high-fiving each other, singing and shaking each other by the shoulders as we yell in each other's faces, did you see that? That's our role in the return of Jesus. And I, for one, cannot wait to do my part in that. Verse 15, now out of his mouth, the mouth of Jesus, goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. As I mentioned a minute ago, I don't think we should take this literally because the Bible uses a sharp sword as an idiom for the word of God in places like Hebrews 4.12. And verse 13 of this same chapter just highlighted the fact that one of Jesus' names is the word of God. All Jesus has to do is speak his will and reality bends to fulfill it. The words of Jesus created mankind, and the words of Jesus will ultimately destroy those on the earth who reject him. Jesus speaks judgment, and his enemies are judged. Jesus speaks destruction, and his enemies are destroyed. That's the idea here. It goes on and it says, and he himself will rule them, the nations, with a rod of iron. Now, this is also figurative. It means that Jesus will be in absolute control of the earth when he rules from the throne of David in Jerusalem. His enemies will not rise and overthrow him. He will have the power to enforce righteousness on the earth. When somebody does something evil, it will be immediately identified and righteously judged. I want to point out real quickly that according to verse 15, The time when Jesus rules the nations comes after his return to the earth. So to anyone who would say, we're in the millennium right now, I would humbly ask, did I miss something? Because I can't remember the second coming having taken place yet. The first part of verse 15 reveals that the them in question are the nations. Now, why is that important? Well, if there is no millennium, no thousand-year reign, as some claim, then when does Jesus rule the nations with a rod of iron? I pray that none of you believe we're in the millennial kingdom right now, because if this is the millennium, then I don't know about you, but I'm deeply disappointed because I have much higher expectations. When the Jesus I read about in the scriptures rules the nations, it seems obvious to me that it will be the most glorious season of history the world will ever see. So whether you take verse 15 allegorically or literally, I just don't see how in the world you could possibly conclude that Jesus is presently ruling the nations. Because if he is, it's going horribly. Ergo, he is not. That's why I can't wait for the day when this verse is truly fulfilled. Because when the Jesus of the Bible rules the nations, 
It's going to be the greatest age the earth will ever see. Verse 15 continues, He himself, that's Jesus, treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. In the hour when it looks like Israel and Jerusalem are about to be destroyed, Jesus will show up. You you may recall that back in chapter 14, we got a preview of Armageddon. Let me read to you verses 19 and 20 from that chapter again. It says, So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. That's around 176 miles. Armageddon, the second coming, is no battle. It's no war. Jesus speaks, and his enemies are destroyed. They're crushed. Jesus died for the sins of every man and woman on earth. He personally paid. He personally received the penalty for the sins of every man and woman who has ever and will ever live. Therefore, he has every right to pour out fierceness and wrath on those who refuse to accept his sacrifice on their behalf. And he will. Verse 16, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I used to get real fired up about this because at first reading, it seems to be implying that Jesus has a tattoo. However, having a tattoo is actually a violation of Old Testament law, which Jesus kept perfectly as a man on the earth. And it seems likely has never and will never violate. The more likely explanation is that King of Kings and Lord of Lords is written on the hem of his garment, the bottom edge where one's family pedigree was traditionally indicated in Hebrew culture. And his robe is simply pulled up to his thigh because he's riding a horse. But what a scene this is going to be. There really is a moment coming when we will be in our resurrected bodies, join the angels and all the saints, and return to the earth with Jesus when he comes in glory as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun. The original word there is mid-heaven, which just means our sky or our atmosphere. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Talk about a bad omen. for the armies of Antichrist and all those on the earth who hate the Lord. This angel tells all meat-eating birds to prepare to feast because the enemies of God are about to die. There's an intentional contrast in the verbiage here. Those who don't want to be part of the marriage supper of the Lamb will instead be part of the supper of the great God. The phrase, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great, 
refers to the fate of those on the earth who have rejected Jesus throughout the tribulation. They will not be permitted to enter the millennial kingdom. Rather, they will be judged at the second coming. Their earthly bodies will be executed and their spirits will descend into Hades. And lest you think this sounds harsh, please remember that we are talking about people who refuse to turn to Jesus despite all the signs and wonders and judgments displayed over the seven years, seven years of the tribulation. We are talking about people who refuse to repent no matter how bad things got. We are talking about people who took the mark of the beast and pledged their allegiance to Antichrist despite seeing and hearing an angel warning them that it would result in their eternal damnation. We are talking about people who cheered as those who loved Jesus were murdered. But most of all, we are talking about people who will simply be given what they want. They don't want to serve Jesus. They don't want a relationship with him. They don't want to be part of his family. They don't want to be under his leadership and authority. And so Jesus will give them what they want, an eternity apart from him. Those who aren't killed at Armageddon will be judged and executed at the so-called sheep and goat judgment, which will likely immediately follow. Stick your bulletin or a bookmark where we are in Revelation 19, and then turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. We're going to jump in in verse 31, and we'll read through verse 46. So let me read to you the words of Jesus. Matthew 25, verse 31. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, Then he will sit on the throne of his glory in Jerusalem. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. So at the second coming, after Armageddon, everyone alive on the earth will be gathered before Jesus And he will separate those who belong to him from those who do not. He says, then the king, Jesus, will say to those on his right hand, the sheep, come, you blessed of my father, inherit, and then underline this phrase, the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is another one of those little clues about our future destiny that we miss because what it's saying is so incredible. It doesn't even enter our minds to consider. It seems scandalous. It sounds blasphemous. But Jesus himself referred to his kingdom as being prepared for us from the foundation of the world. When the Bible teaches that we have become adopted sons and daughters of the Father, it also teaches that our adoption has made us brothers and sisters of the Father's Son, Jesus. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. 
And he is also our brother through adoption. And one of the things that I just cannot wrap my head around is the reality that Jesus is excited to share everything he has with us. We didn't earn any of it. He earned it all. And it is given to him by his father. And yet, even though Jesus earned it through the worst suffering anyone will ever endure, all he wants to do with his kingdom is share it with those who love him, saying, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. As David mused when he pondered the ways of the Lord, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Jesus continues in verse 25 and says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus also described this judgment in Matthew 13, if you want to turn there. Beginning in Matthew 13, verse 24, Jesus shares what is known as the parable of the tares saying another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went on his way. Tares are a type of weed that looks exactly like wheat until it is harvested. So it's a disastrous thing if you're trying to grow a field of wheat and you get tares in there because you can't discern between the weeds and the wheat. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together 
until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And if we go down to verse 37, Jesus explains the parable. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus. The field is the world and the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears... Let him hear. The second coming will be glorious and joyful for those who love the Lord, but it will also be doom and terror for those who hate him. And I'll say it again, there will not be doom and terror and repentance. The phrase gnashing of teeth means they will still be displaying the hostility toward God that marked their lives. Like Pharaoh in the face of the miracles of Egypt, and the people of the earth in the face of the miracles of the tribulation. God will simply be giving them what they want, eternity apart from him. Now, it's a whole separate study, but I just want to point out something for you Bible nerds. The famous war of Gog and Magog described in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 bears many similarities to Armageddon. Just go and read Ezekiel 39, verses 17 through 20, and compare it to Revelation chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. You might find a little bit of clarity regarding the timing of the war of Gog and Magog and where it falls in the chronology of eschatological events. Verse 19, John says, And I saw the beast... The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So these armies will be gathered together on the plain of Jezreel in the valley in northern Israel, more famously known as Armageddon. Antichrist's plan will be a final attempt to wipe ethnic and political Israel off the face of the earth, starting with Jerusalem. Revelation 16 tells us that armies from the east will be gathered at Armageddon. According to Daniel 11, the south, which includes the pan-African nations and the Arab states, will band together and head north into this conflict, as well as the king of the north, likely Russia. And as they all meet and converge in and around Armageddon, they will look up and see Jesus returning to the earth. Their response will be to turn all their weapons upon him in the greatest fool's errand the world will ever witness. Now notice the extreme amount of detail we're given regarding the epic back and forth battle between Jesus and Satan. Verse 20, then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence 
by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. It happens like that. In an instant, Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet are captured and cast into the lake of fire. And if you're thinking, what about Satan? Well, he gets dealt with first thing in the next chapter. The lake of fire is the final destination of Satan, Antichrist, the false prophet, all supernatural entities opposed to God, and all men and women who reject Jesus as Lord and Savior. Hades is a temporary holding place for the spirits of men and women where they await their final judgment before being cast into the lake of fire. Verse 21, and the rest, the rest of the armies opposing Jesus were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, that's Jesus, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. The voice that calmed the storm cast out demons, healed the sick, raised the dead, and created the universe, will speak a word, and Antichrist and the false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire. He will speak a word, and physical life will flee from their armies. He will speak a word, and all those who have hated him will lose their earthly lives and descend into Hades. Jesus' victory will be effortless and instantaneous. The prophet Zechariah describes God's wrath against the armies of Armageddon. This is a little graphic. This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Their bodies will rapidly decay where they stand, or they will be killed by their fellow soldiers who will be seized by absolute panic. As I mentioned in the introduction, two of the things that Jesus will do at the second coming are defeat all forces of evil, freeing the earth of Satan's influence, that'll take place at Armageddon, and remove everyone on the earth who has rejected him. That will be the sheep and goats judgment. Those who hate Jesus will not want to live under his rule in the millennium. So he will honor their desire and remove them from the earth. I want to share some more verses with you that speak about these future events. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, Paul writes, The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. Jude tells us that Enoch, the first man to be raptured, 
was a prophet, writing, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, apostates, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jesus also talked about these events in Matthew 24, saying, As the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. The idea is that when Jesus returns, everyone on earth will see it because it will light up the entire sky. The whole atmosphere will be full of the glory of God and his saints and his angels returning with him. And then Jesus says, for wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered. And I have to share this because whenever I've taught on this previously, I shared I had no idea what it meant. And all the scholars I had read said that too. They either didn't know or they had explanations that clearly didn't make sense. But after more than 15 years, I believe that Jesus has revealed the answer to me this week. And it is annoyingly obvious, as I'm sure some of you have just figured out. It's simply an allusion to Revelation 19, verses 17 and 18, where the angel calls the meat-eating birds to feast on the dead bodies of God's enemies. It's eagles gathering around dead bodies at the second coming. That's the illusion. Mystery solved. Jesus continues in Matthew 24 and says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. The elect on heaven and on the earth. Those who have turned to Jesus in the tribulation, along with all of those who are in heaven, will be gathered and invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The church will be there as the bride of Christ. Those who have rejected the Lord will mourn, not in repentance, but because their kingdom has been brought to nothing, and Jesus is coming to claim the earth as his own. However, there will be one group of people who will mourn in repentance at the second coming. Ethnic Israel, all ethnic Jews who are still alive on the earth at the second coming and have not yet recognized Jesus as Messiah. You see, because they collectively rejected Jesus at his first coming, Israel has had their spiritual eyes blinded to the truth ever since. Because they would not believe in Jesus, God made it so they cannot believe in Jesus. And the Lord did this to be merciful because every person who rejects God will be judged based upon the degree of revelation they received. The greater the revelation, the greater the sin of rejecting Jesus. 
Knowing they would continue to reject Jesus throughout the centuries, God chose to limit Israel's revelation, sparing them even greater judgment. When he was on the earth, Jesus wept over Israel's hard hearts, crying out in Luke 13, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, now get this, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Paul writes about this reality in Romans eleven twenty five, saying, Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. At the second coming, that moment arrives, and the blindness that is currently on Israel is lifted. In the very next verse, Paul tells us that the destiny of Israel is that all Israel will be saved. Zechariah 12.10 tells us that when they see Jesus at the second coming, Israel will instantly be made able to recognize him as the Messiah they've been waiting for. Zechariah prophesies, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Jesus will return to the earth, deliver Israel from her enemies, and in a moment, their blindness will be lifted. They will recognize Jesus as their Messiah, and they will grieve in collective repentance over their 2,000 years of rejecting him and their involvement in his death. And Jesus will forgive them just as Jesus has forgiven us. Their relationship will be restored and they will enter the millennial kingdom as part of the family of God. God is not through with the Jew, as some claim. Paul explains all this in detail in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Three chapters that speak to Israel's past, present, and future. He is a God who remembers all his promises. And he's a God who keeps all his promises. And I'm so thankful for that. I didn't have room on the outline, but for those who want to dig into the Lord's plan and heart for Israel a little bit more, you can check out Isaiah chapter 25 and Isaiah chapter 54, verses 5 through 17. Isaiah 25 and Isaiah 54 5 through 17. Both passages prophesy regarding the Lord's plans for Israel at the second coming and in the millennium. Well, as I said in the intro, at the second coming, Jesus will defeat all forces of evil, freeing the earth of Satan's influence. He will reveal himself to Israel, and their relationship will be restored. He will remove everyone on the earth who has rejected him. He will host the marriage supper of the Lamb where he will be joined to his bride, the church, and he will inaugurate the millennial kingdom and begin his reign over the earth from Jerusalem. And I cannot wait. I don't know how this chapter feels to you, but to me it feels almost too 
abrupt. I mean, we've had tribulation and judgments and wrath being detailed for what seems like a really, really long time, and suddenly it's all over, just like that? Yes, just like that. It's as instantaneous as your salvation. One moment you're dead, the next you are alive in Christ. It's as instantaneous as eternity with Jesus. One moment you're in this body of death and the next you are clothed in white robes in heaven with the Lord. The book of Revelation desperately wants us to understand how quickly things can change. Jesus, writing through the Apostle John, wants us to grasp the truth that when it looks like everything is collapsing and Satan is winning, there is a greater reality, a greater plan unfolding right on schedule. And because Jesus' victory is certain, we know that our victory is certain too. Because as always, He is our victory. We keep the faith because we know that for all of us, one way or another, everything is going to change in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. When the moment comes for you, when everything changes in an instant, how will you feel about the way you lived your life? How will you feel about the things you prioritized in your life? Will the things you spent your life devoted to, the things you spent your life serving matter when that moment comes for you? I want to leave you with this exhortation from our brother Paul. In Galatians 6, 9, he writes, Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Jesus, as always, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the word of God. You are all truth. You're the way, the truth, and the life. You are the answer to every question that matters. You are the meaning of life and the universe and all reality. And you have revealed yourself to us through your word. So Lord, I pray that we would not grow weary in doing good. Because when we do, when we live for you wholeheartedly, we are living in light of true reality. The kingdoms of this world are destined for destruction. And so, Lord, would you help us not to give them an ounce more of our time, treasure, resources, devotion, or service than is necessary. It's our desire that every bit of everything we have would go to you for the glory of your name, to serving you, Lord, that we might live profitably for the only things that truly matter in eternity. 
And we thank you that that moment is coming for each of us when everything will change in an instant between where we are now and when that moment comes. Help us not to lose heart, Lord. Would you encourage us all right now by the power of your spirit? Would you release a gift of faith and fill us up afresh with that right now, Lord? Would you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, to live for you with everything we have because you deserve nothing less. You are a good God who is nothing but good and nothing but faithful. And we love you for it. And thank you that we will enjoy you in the kingdom that you've prepared for us before the foundations of the world. You're just so good, and we love you for it. We bless you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us for this study. Before you go, I want to share just a few quick things with you. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to gospelcity.ca slash gospel right now. You'll find a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing. So go to gospelcity.ca slash gospel right now to learn more about Jesus. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Email us at info at gospelcity.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you'd like to support the teaching ministry of Gospel City through financial giving, you can do so by going to gospelcity.ca slash give. And finally, I want to invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for updates and encouragements throughout the week. And you can find all those links in the top right corner of our website. We love you, Uppercase C Church. Be blessed.